Hello and welcome back to the second episode of the Tough Take Podcast. I'm Zach Green. And I'm Luca DeLosta. In today's episode, we will be recapping the Chargers vs. Browns NFL game, the Giants vs. Dodgers NLDS, the Kraken vs. Vegas Golden Knights NHL opening night game, and talking about parental behavior in the youth sports world. Let's get into it. So let's talk about that Browns-Chargers game. I think that's a possible candidate for game of the year. Am I right? I think you are so far. That was a great game in Los Angeles, LeBron in attendance. I want to talk about the Browns side of the ball. Baker Mayfield went 23 for 32 for 305 yards. Pretty good. With two touchdowns and a pass rating of 122.5. Nick Chubb was also a huge factor in this game. He had 21 rushes for 161 yards with an average of 7.7 and a touchdown coming off his longest run of the day, a 52-yarder. Luca, let's talk about Kareem Hunt. How do you think he really impacted this game with Nick Chubb being their main back? I think Nick Chubb being the main back is obviously, yeah, he is the main back, but with a dynamic duo like Cleveland has there with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, they can really utilize both. But as you want me to answer... I think Kareem Hunt can really impact the game in the way as he's a strong power back who will run right over guys. He won't go to dodge them. He will run right through them. Yeah, definitely it helps with the number one offensive line in football, giving them with the big holes, and especially with the play-action game with Baker has, with the deep threats like David Njoku, Rashard Higgins, Donovan Peoples-Jones, and even Odell when he's healthy. And Jarvis Landry also when he comes back healthy. I think this— Brown's offense has a chance to be a top five offense in the NFL when they put the pieces together right. Let's talk about David Njoku in this game. He had seven car- seven targets, caught all of them for seven catches, 149 yards, and a touchdown with that one being 71 yards. David Njoku, I think he's very underrated in my opinion. People also forget that the Browns have Austin Hooper, who came off a breakout season two years ago with the Falcons. He's not utilized as much as I think he should be on the on the Browns, but I think he's also a big factor in this game, which he did convert a two-point conversion. Luca, let's talk about the other receivers in this game. Yeah, and in this case, I'm assuming you're referring to Rashard Higgins and Odell Beckham Jr. Am I wrong? Nope. Okay, so Odell Beckham Jr. coming off that season-ending injury last year, tearing his ACL, has been off to a quiet start this year with zero touchdowns, and only held to 41.3 yards per game. And then you have Jarvis Landry out with injury. That takes one away. And you then Rashard Higgins only having five targets in that game, catching three of them for 29 yards and a touchdown. And that is why I believe Baker Mayfield has been targeting his tight ends, Austin Hooper and David Njoku, in which they played well this game. Yes, I do think they played well. But I don't know if this offense can really have a shootout with a team like the Cardinals in this com- upcoming week with people like Nick Chubb out, Jarvis Landry not being there, and Odell Beckham being an underperformer. Let's shift to the Browns' defensive side of the ball. They allowed Justin Herbert to four air touchdowns. They also had three rushing ones, one by Justin Herbert and two by Eckler. But one was punched in by the Browns, I have to notably say because they wanted more time on the clock to get the ball. They did have Eckler fumble twice, but Cleveland only did recover once, and they only sacked Justin Herbert twice, one by Miles Garrett and one by Malik McDowell. Luca, how do you think that this Browns team can generate more pressure 
on teams on teams like Justin Herbert with a mobile QB who are very big in the play action and passing game? See, that's a hard question to answer because watching the game, you got players like Justin Herbert where you said are mobile QBs and they're able to extend a play with just moving outside the pocket. And obviously, I think that Justin Herbert's a more mobile guy than a freak athlete like Miles Garrett. But you also have to give credit to that Chargers offensive line with allowing Justin Herbert to get the time to scramble outside the pocket and make the play. I also saw there was a couple times where they blew coverage and they gave up deep touchdowns. And with that, I want to switch over to the Chargers offense and Justin Herbert lighting it up in that game. Yes, he did. 26 for 43, 398 yards, four touchdowns, one rushing, with a pass rating of 122. Their offensive line looked great, like Lucas said, buying him time with rookie standout Rashawn Slater, proving he was the right pick. He's definitely playing better than Sewell, who was drafted above him to the Lions. I also want to talk about Austin Eckler. He had all kinds of space, 17 carries for 66 yards, two touchdowns, and he also had five catchers for 53 yards and touchdown receiving. Mike Williams, their standout wide receiver right now. He had a great day. He had eight catches for 165 yards and two touchdowns. Him and Keenan Allen, I think, are top wide receiver duo in this league, especially with their offensive tight end, Jared Cook, being a big veteran, but still having the speed in there. Yes, and I want to point out something you said to me before we even started recording was that you said Mike Williams is kind of a guy who has an on and off season, and obviously this season is an on season. Now, I hate to take away from his credit and get into two touchdowns, but if I'm going to be honest, at least one of them was complete blown coverage. The other one was a little bit, I think, blown coverage. But nonetheless, he gets down the field, gets open, receives the ball, and gets points on the board for the Chargers. Yeah, I also want to bring up Keenan Allen in this team. He's been quieter out of the two, but he still had six catchers for 75 yards, being very big. He is a top wide receiver in this league. I really like him. I really like this duo. I want to see what they do going forward. Let's move on to the Chargers' defensive side of the ball. It wasn't a big factor with the score being 47-42. Chargers only had one sack coming from Derwin James on a blitz. It was a strip sack, but they called it back. The only QB hit in this game for the Chargers was coming from Derwin James as well. I also want to bring up Asante Samuel Jr., who is their star rookie, who's gotten Pepsi Rookie of the Week twice so far. He only had three tackles. But Luca, how do you think their secondary can improve when going up in a competitor like Lamar Jackson? There's one factor I definitely see that they need to improve on is the fact that they were not making tackles initially, which led to a touchdown like David Njoku's touchdown. But Lamar Jackson obviously lit up the game last week, throwing for 440 yards. We'll see if they can do that again. But I think going forward, they should focus on getting pressure to the Ravens offense who have suffered from injuries on the O-line as of lately. And with that, let's switch over to the Dodgers versus Giants NLDS series. Man, what a series that was. Going to a Game 5, Dodgers playing in the second elimination game in this postseason already. And they won 106 games and were in the wild card winning off a walk-off home run by Chris Taylor. But in this series, the Dodgers come out on top with both teams swinging the bat well, but starting with the Dodgers, who were led by Mookie Betts with nine hits and recording 
four hits and four at-bats in that game five, as well as Cody Bellinger shining when he needed to, hitting a RBI, which sent the leading the game-winning runner into home plate. Cody Bellinger has struggled this season compared to last, and he led the team in strikeouts this series with seven strikeouts on 15 at-bats. Then you also have Bellinger not doing that well, but Will Smith, their catcher, playing tremendously, especially at the plate. He led the team in home runs with two this series, only to be followed by Mookie Betts, who had the, who had one. Mookie Betts also led the Dodgers with on-base percentage and batting average of players who had at least 3.1 plate appearances per game. Betts recorded a batting average of 45 and on-base percentage of 45% as well, with only Will Smith to be behind him with a 42 on-base percentage. Smith, however, led the Dodgers in slugging percentage, which is the rate of total bases per at-bat, with a slugging percentage of 77%, which is actually crazy. Smith and Betts proving to be the Dodgers' most dangerous weapons at the plate in this series. Now switching over to the pitching for the Dodgers, they had three starting pitchers, Max Scherzer, Walker Buehler, and Julio Urias, who were their three starting pitchers they rotated in this series. All three gave up at least one home run versus a right-handed batter, but haven't given up a single run versus a left-handed batter, which goes to show they struggle more against right-handed batters than left-handed batters. Of the three pitchers, Max Scherzer had the lowest ERA, which is earned runs runs against, with a 1.13 ERA, which is calculated by the earned runs times 9 divided by the innings pitched. Bueller had the highest ERA with a 3.38 ERA. Bueller, however, led with 10.2 innings pitched and with Urias behind him with 9 innings pitched. Scherzer has allowed 3 hits against, which was the lowest, and Bueller has allowed 9 hits against, which was the highest. Safe to say, Walker Bueller struggled a little in this series. Scherzer led the three with 12 strikeouts, with Urias not far behind with 10 strikeouts. Bueller had the highest whip, which is walks plus hits, divided by the innings, with a whip of 1.13. While Scherzer had the lowest with a whip of 0.5, which is crazy, crazy, crazy low. Scherzer lit it up in this series. But let's switch over from the Dodgers and go more on the Giants side. Chris Bryant leading the Giants at the plate with eight hits in the series. Giants had five players record one home run. Chris Bryant, Brandon Crawford, Evan Longoria, Buster Posey, and Darian Ruff. The Giants also had four players record two RBIs in the series, which was tied for the most of the team, which was Chris Bryant, Brandon Crawford, Buster Posey, and Darren Ruff again. Posey led the teams in time struck out with six times struck out, but he was also tied for the most at-bats with 20 at-bats. He was tied with 20 at-bats with Brandon Crawford. The Giants did not record a single stolen base in the series. However, they didn't even attempt stealing a base in this series. Of players having at least 3.1 plate appearances per game, Bryant led the team in batting average with a 471 batting average with 8 hits on 17 at-bats. Chris Bryant proving to be the Giants' most dangerous player at the plate in this series 
which was a big step up from the regular season where he recorded eighth in batting average among Giants players who had at least 100 at-bats throughout the season. Now switching over to the pitching side, you have Logan Webb who proved to be super, super dominant in this series, pitching 14.2 innings, recording an ERA of .62, astonishing, and he held the Dodgers to five hits, zero runs, and recording 10 strikeouts in a Game 1 shutout in which the Giants won 4 nothing. In Game 5, Webb pitched seven innings, only gave up four hits, one run, walked a batter, and got seven strikeouts. Their other starting pitcher, Kevin Gaussman, struggled in a game two, giving up four hits, four runs, and walking three batters only in six innings. Dodgers went on to win game two, nine to two. Of pitchers who recorded at least one inning pitch per game, Webb led the Giants in whip with a .68 whip. Webb also led the Giants under this category under the category of batting average allowed with only allowing a .173 batting average. Now wrapping up the Dodgers versus Giants NLDS, let's switch over to the Seattle Kraken NHL expansion team having their first game against the Vegas Golden Knights, a team that was a expansion team in 2018. Vegas, going up within two periods, going up 3-0, and they were a team that was 90-0-1 when up 3-0. What do you think they did or what happened to let the Kraken score three unanswered goals? I think the Kraken were a bit nervous coming into this game as being the first team to represent Seattle coming up against the other expansion team from not long ago, the Vegas Golden Knights, who in their first couple years at the NHL have have had great success going to a Stanley Cup versus the Caps and also being in the playoffs a couple times. Yeah, you can bring up the point that they were nervous, but at the same time, I don't think that's a valid point because they're an expansion team, which means they took players from other NHL teams, meaning they took players from winning cultures like goalie Philip Grubauer, who last year played amazingly, recording the second lowest goals against average last season with a 1.95 goals against average. He had the 8th highest save percentage with a 9.22 save percentage and most shutouts with 7 shutouts. Again, he was on the Colorado Avalanche, who last year were a Stanley Cup contending team, and this year I believe they still are. So overall, I think Grubauer got off to a very rough start, but once he settled in, he looked sharp. What is your take on Philip Grubauer? I think Philip Grubauer played okay. He let a lot of shots through, some hitting the post, but in years past, he's shown his worth, having a great year in Colorado, coming over to Seattle, has had great years in Washington, but I think he can definitely be a factor in this team. After Seattle's slow start, they got it going, scoring three unanswered goals, one by Jared McCann, one by Morgan Geeky, and one by Ryan Donato. Now switching over from the Kraken to the Vegas Golden Knights side, you have Robin Leonard, who played, I think, pretty well that game, recording a 3.01 goals against average and having a .903 save percentage, faced 31 shots, saved 28. Now, while Robin Leonard had a very good game, the Vegas offense was very lethal in their ability to counterattack on on the Kraken's bad giveaways. With 
seven players recording at least one point in that game. Had two players, their captain Mark Stone, and as well as Max Pacioretty, lead the way with three points each. Pacioretty actually recording two goals, almost three to have the hat trick on the night. However, as I said, their offense was lethal. It was also struggling when it came to power play. Going 0 for 3 on the power play. However, their kill did go 3 for 3. So both teams going 0 for 3 on the power play. In all, I think this game was a good game to watch. And it was a high scoring game. So I didn't talk much about defense because I didn't think there was much. But Seattle fans should be excited. Especially now seeing that they won their second game against the Predators. And they should be excited for the future of this team. Where I actually think this team possibly could be a playoff team once everyone settles in and with that let's shift over into be parental behavior in new sports yeah now i've personally been in a situation where parents have been horrible on the sidelines and talking a lot making the refs feel bad maybe even making players feel bad trying to control the game from the sideline however i was reading an article from the washington post this morning that said the number of referees available for youth sports has actually gone down as of recently due to obnoxious and poor behavior from parents. What do you think parents should be doing in order to stop this? Or what is a way that maybe referees or youth sports organizations can cut this stuff out? I definitely think that there is a line between getting mad and being disrespectful towards the referees that have volunteered the time to come referee the game. With stuff like a bad call, they may think, and they heckle at the ref. I think refs are there to support the kids in the game and make sure everyone's safe, not make a bad call or hurt anyone's feelings. With that, it is a competitive sports game, so you're always going to have emotion, even in regular sports. With the NFL, you know, personal foul, taunting, you're always going to have emotion in sports. But what parents can do more with kids is maybe talk to them about anger, anger management, and not letting their emotions get the best of them to hurt their team in the long run. I like how you say their emotions get the best of them or control their emotions in the competitive culture of sports because another point in the article was that the point of youth sports has gotten to parents being like you there to their kids you need to do this because it is your way of getting a college scholarship and getting into college. Now, that can be a case in some time if your kid is a super athlete, but under 7% of high school athletes go on to play at the collegiate level. With that being said, it is very hard to get to the collegiate level, and only a handful of players are. And as you said, the referees are taking their time out of their day to go and referee a game. And especially, it's especially evident in younger kids, me having a personal experience on that yourself as well, Playing soccer at such a young age, the referees would actually, when they make a call, explain why they make a call. It's kind of a way of teaching the kids how to play the sport as they're playing it. Yes, and and when I was younger in a game, the refs would sometimes stop the game and teach the kids, no, you can't do that. You can't foul them like this in the correct way and how to play defense. And this helps the kids later on not to be aggressive and, and like Luca said, show their emotions not in an aggressive way. And I think that a lot of these emotions, especially anger on the field, come from influence from their parents in which a lot of times the angry players on the field, a lot of I've seen is their parents are the angry parents or the loud parents on the sideline. However, 
I've come to learn that parents actually have to sign a parent code of conduct in which they sign off saying they will be able to control their emotions, in which sometimes they are not able to. And with that, I want to switch over into a fun fact. Breakout second-year star Trayvon Diggs of the Dallas Cowboys, leading the league with six interceptions, was actually originally a wide receiver at Alabama. Nick Saban, being the mastermind head coach that he is, put him at cornerback. Trayvon, who has actually a brother in the NFL, Stephon Diggs, a star wide receiver on the Buffalo Bills, Trayvon called Stephon frustrated and upset, and Stephon gave him the advice that in the mentality that now you have to put the work in to be the best you can be in the situation that you're in and not to pity about it when you are now cornerback and not wide receiver. Trayvon has nothing now but gratitude for Nick Saban. And with this, I would like to just take a moment before we close this episode to say that unsportsmanlike behavior has been in the news as of lately, especially in the sports world. Last week, we talked about taunting. This week, we talked about parental behavior in the youth sports world, especially unsporting behavior. And this past week, it was evident that Raiders coach John Gruden resigned in a scandal that had the whole country talking about appropriate conduct and appropriate words in the sports world. And with that, that is Zacharine, Luca DeLosta. Thank you for listening.